Please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning's passage is 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17, which can be found on page 259 of the Pew Bible. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I have commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build, me, build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, when I put a, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. If you would keep your Bibles open to 2 Samuel, let's pray together this morning. God, as we open your word together today, we ask that you would dwell with us, that by your spirit we would receive wisdom from scripture, that you would open our eyes to see all that you have to show us and our ears to hear all that you have to say to us. And God, we ask that we would be affected by having been reminded of your love for us and your reign in our lives from this passage in 2 Samuel this morning. We ask these things in the name of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation, like at maybe like a restaurant or something, after you've eaten your food and you reach for your wallet to pay for the meal that you have just enjoyed, only to realize that you don't have your wallet or that you forgot your purse. You panic for a second, right? Your heart skips a beat because you've already eaten the food, so it's not like you can give it back. You wonder for just a split second if they're going to chain you up in the back and make you wash dishes until you've paid off your debt. And so you promise the wait staff or the manager 
I'll come back. I promise. I'll come back and pay for my food. I seriously will. You can trust me. We all know what it's like in life to make promises to one another because being able to trust one another is a critical part of how we relate to one another. As kids, we inherently understood this, and so we devised ways of assuring our trustworthiness. We came up with complex ways of knowing whether someone was really telling the truth or would really do what they said they would. For many of us, those serious, meaningful promises involved the use of pinkies or spit to enshrine the seriousness of the words. You wouldn't dare make a pinky promise to someone unless you really meant it. And breaking a pinky promise was a serious betrayal, as serious a betrayal as a kid could conceive. And as we've grown up, the promises that we make have gotten more serious, and the assurances of trustworthiness that we have devised have become even more complex. We sign contracts, we make marriage vows, we click agree on the terms of user terms and conditions that nobody ever reads. They're just grown-up versions of the pinky promises that we made as kids because they're our attempt to assure our trustworthiness. They're promises that we will do what we said we would. And so we have an instinctive understanding of scenes like the one that we see unfolding here in 2 Samuel in which God makes some significant promises. It's a moment reminiscent of some others in Scripture in which God assures His people about His plans for the future, that He is trustworthy and that He will do what He says He will do. He makes these covenant promises to His people because He is a God of promise-making and promise-keeping. It's simply part of who He is. And covenants are God's way of revealing how His plan for eternity will be worked out in the context of relationships with people. By establishing covenants with his people through Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses, and now in this scene with David, God is giving his people a deeper understanding of his nature, his character, his intent, and how he is at work to save his people. And each one, God outlines his own obligations, the things that he will do for his people. One scholar describes God's covenant as his self-written job descriptions. His covenant promises are his self-written job descriptions. The things that are his responsibility to carry out because he has made them so. And in most of them, in most of these covenant promises that he outlines for his people, he also outlines his expectations for his people, because covenants are two-party agreements. So when God makes a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai, way back in the book of Exodus, he tells them through Moses, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." God's love for his people is not conditional, but the relationship between him and his people is not inviolable. They can and they will fail to uphold his covenant expectations of them. But God will not fail to uphold his covenant commitments to them. 
He will never fail to be who He said He will be, and He will never fail to do what He said that He will do. And at some of the most critical moments in the history of these people, God has established His relationship with them through covenant promises. And with each new covenant, we've come to understand a little bit more of both who God is and what He is obligating Himself to do, what His self-written job description is. It's a lot to keep track of because it basically encapsulates the whole Old Testament. And I think it's helpful to think of these multiple covenants that God makes with His people in Scripture less like an ice sculpture and more like a sculpture that's made from stone. An ice sculpture is quick to make, and it's designed to last a short period of time. Maybe it's for a wedding or a party of some sort, but it's temporary. And once it's run its course, you have to make a new one. And that's sometimes, I think, how we think about the covenants in the Bible. Once one of them has run its course, God replaces it with a new one. A marble sculpture or a stone sculpture, on the other hand, takes a long time to make. And it lasts, in theory, forever. The covenants that we see in Scripture are not like ice sculptures. Instead, they are each like a day's work on a stone sculpture. Each one adds to the one that came before it, picking up where the one before it last left off. And each is a part of revealing the masterpiece that lies underneath. God's covenants don't replace what's come before, but instead add to what He has already promised to do. So when we arrive at 2 Samuel chapter 7, God has already established a lot of His self-written job description. And His covenant with David is not going to replace the promises that He has made to His people in the past, but instead become a part of those promises. At this point in the story of the book of Samuel, David has been king for almost a decade, and it has been a rocky road so far. David has already faced many trials and difficulties that began well before he even became the king. For years, he feared for his safety as his predecessor, Saul, threatened his life constantly. And David lived on the run, fleeing from this murderous king. And then after Saul died and David became the king, much of the kingdom that he had been given refused to accept the legitimacy of his reign. Only the tribe of Judah was loyal to David, and the rest of the nation, the vast majority of the nation, rallied behind Saul's son, a man named Ishbosheth, and they organized a coup attempt. And for seven and a half years, the first seven and a half years of David's term as the king, he fought to unite this nation. It was a difficult but ultimately successful struggle. And in 2 Samuel 5, David is finally anointed the king of a unified nation. But then, immediately afterward, likely perceiving the weakened state of Israel's defenses because of this infighting over the last seven and a half years, a neighboring nation attacks. The Philistines mount a war against Israel. But again, David succeeded in his mission. He inquired whether God would be with him, and given the green light by God, he goes into battle on two separate occasions and defeats the Philistines with ease. The Philistines were so overwhelmed that they abandoned their idols on the battlefield. The gods that they had brought with them into battle 
to defend them and ensure their victory, they drop on the ground because they realize the God of these Israelites is stronger than the pieces of driftwood that they have brought with them to battle. And so they drop them and bail. At this point in David's reign, everything that he touches turns to gold. After uniting the nation and defending it from foreign attacks, he establishes a new capital city, the city of Jerusalem. It is the new political center of this nation, and in chapter 6, he brings the Ark of the Covenant to live in Jerusalem, and it becomes the new religious center of this nation. Everything he touches succeeds. And as he, as he surveys this new capital city from the window of his palace, he makes an observation. He says, in the opening of the passage we're looking at this morning, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. David sees something out of line about this arrangement. Now that he's the king of a unified country, victorious in battle against outside forces, and living in a sparkling new capital city, he has a pretty nice house built from cedar timbers that have been imported to Israel, a sign of wealth and significance. Yet, David acknowledges that the most significant object in Jewish possession, the Ark of the Covenant, is sitting in a tent outside. The Ark represents God's presence among His people and His relationship with His people. It's a central fixture of Jewish religious practice, and it represents the literal point of contact between the creator of the universe and the people whom he has called to be his treasured possession. It's an object, object of such significance and holiness that even touching it in a state of sin results in instantaneous death, which occurred just one chapter prior to the scene that we're seeing unfold in chapter 7. It is an incredibly holy object. It represents something incredibly important, yet it resides in a tent. That would be like going to the Louvre in Paris and hearing that the Mona Lisa has been moved from its typical hanging place in the museum to the parking garage. There's something inherently wrong about the Ark of the Covenant resting in a tent while David is living in a palace, he thinks. Even though the tent itself is God's design from back in Exodus 26, it is the tabernacle, a sort of portable temple that the people could set up for worship and sacrifices during their time in the wilderness. It is richly decorated and meticulously designed, but it is still a tent. And David implies by his observation that he intends to do something about that. His concern seems well-founded and rightly motivated. He's uncomfortable with the honor that he has received next to what he perceives as a humble dwelling for God. And so he brings it up with Nathan, the prophet, who replaced Samuel after his death. Because just as during the previous administration, Samuel advised and directed the king with God's instruction, Nathan is David's advisor. And what David is suggesting is a significant project a significant undertaking, not only one that will incur significant expense, but it will change the nature of the worship of God's people. But not only that, it mimics the traditions of other nations, the nations that surrounded Israel, who all built temples for their gods to live in. Israel is unique in that they do not have a temple or a rich dwelling place for their God, and David is implying 
a significant change to the way things work in Israel. So he brings it up with Nathan, who immediately signs off on whatever David is suggesting. His reasoning is simple. Everything David touches turns to gold. Everything that David has in mind to do, God blesses, or so it seems. Certainly that is the way that David's uh, time as king has unfolded so far. But as the rest of this passage that we're looking at this morning indicates, that was a big whiff on Nathan's part, swing and a miss. And I think that's an important detail that's often overlooked. Nathan was not being disobedient. He was not being arrogant. He was not neglecting God's word or his work. But he got this one completely wrong. And that gives me some comfort. Because pastors and prophets have some of the same responsibilities. Now, I'm not saying that I'm anything like Nathan, but we've been called to some of the same work. Namely, we're called to proclaim God's Word to God's people. Our first and greatest responsibility is to hear what God says and to say it to you. And Nathan, who hears from God directly and specifically on various occasions, thinks that he's interpreting things correctly He sees the way that God has proven that he will bless David and proven his approval of David and says, go for it. Whatever you have in mind to do, do it. He shoots from the hip and he misses completely. And that's because none of us are infallible, even though sometimes we put certain people on a pedestal. And sometimes those people are pastors. But none of them, even the best of them, have perfect understanding, or all the answers. And it's important to me that you know that. It's important to me that you know that that Nathan got it wrong sometimes, because if he did, you better believe that I will. And so beginning in verse 4, we see God's answer to David's suggestion and Nathan's assumption. The very same night, we read in verse 4, God's word came to Nathan to be conveyed to David. And in this passage, God responds to David with three main points. First, by looking backward at who God has been, or looking backward at who God has been can help us understand who God is now. God's character doesn't change. His nature does not evolve over time. So by looking back at the way that God has interacted and established a relationship with his people in the past, we can develop a better understanding of the way that he is doing so in the present. God asks David a question in verse 5. Would you build me a house to dwell in? You, David, you're going to build a house for the creator of the world that you live in? It's not an offensive suggestion for David to make, uh, since we're going to see later in this passage that God promises that David's son will, will build God a house. But God answers David's suggestion by directing him to think about the history of these people and how God has dwelt among them during that time. From the very beginning, he has had no house. From the days when he rescued his people from slavery in Egypt to this day, and for the centuries in between, God has met with his people in a tent, the tabernacle. He certainly had the authority to to deserve something greater or to demand something greater, yet he did not instruct his people to build it. Instead, he gave extremely specific instructions 
for how the people were to build the tabernacle itself, how it was to be transported, how it was to be assembled, and lengthy instructions for its use. There was absolutely no shortage of instruction from God when it came to a temple structure, yet none of them involve the construction of a temple building. And even if David was thinking, well, sure, that was, that was before we conquered the promised land when our people were wandering in the wilderness and we needed a portable structure uh, in which to, to worship God and make our sacrifices, even if he is making that assumption in his mind, God corrects the assumption before he can even vocalize it. Because even after the Israelites had taken possession of the land and settled in it under the leadership of judges, even then, God did not command the construction of a temple building. It's not because he will not one day do so, but because so far that has not been his design or his concern. The point, it seems, is that since God has not instructed his people in the past to build a temple, David would have been safe to wait on that instruction to come from God rather than taking it upon himself to do it. Looking back could have helped. Looking back at how God had led his people, how he had instructed them in worship, and how he had related to them could have helped them understand what his priorities actually were. And even though David's intentions were earnest, his conclusions were naive which is why God asks him, would you build me a house to dwell in? Because if anyone had bothered to consider the history of God's relationship with his people, they would have seen that his command, and by seeing that command, they would have understood his priority, was that their leaders shepherd them, rather than ask why they have not built him a temple. That line in verse 7 seems designed specifically for David, who himself was a shepherd, when he was called to be the king of these people. That remains the work that God has called him to carry out now, to be a shepherd of these people, a steward of the true king, charged with protecting and guiding God's flock. Obviously, worship is important, which anyone can see by the sheer amount of space devoted to it in the law. And David, who wrote many of the Psalms, was obviously passionate about worship, So it makes sense that he desired to build an impressive temple structure for God. He wanted to do something for God who had done so much for him. But that is not what God has called him to do. He's been called to be a shepherd. David needed only to consider the history of God's relationship with his people to discern his priorities. Secondly, beginning in verse 8, God's answer to David's plans reflects on the fact that he keeps his promises, though not always in the ways we might expect him to. In light of Israel's history, which David had just been reminded of, God says, therefore, tell him this. The point that God is going to make, starting in verse 8, will be founded on what he has just said in verses 5 through 7. It begins with a reminder that God took David from being a shepherd in the field with the sheep to be the prince or the leader of the nation of God's people. God was the one who did that, not David. It was because of God's mercy that David was called a man after God's own heart to carry out that responsibility. It was the most significant moment in David's life up to that point, 
the moment we looked at last week in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when he was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the next king. The day when God said, this is the one whom I have chosen, who will take the throne. But that moment will pale in comparison to what God is about to do. Because God's promise then, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, was only a sliver of what he intended to do through this servant, David. And just as we observed concerning God's covenants, he never replaces prior commitments, he only adds to them. And so he reminds David of how it started for him, with God's mercy, and how it is continued through God's ongoing provision. He says, I have been with you wherever you went and, and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. What God has begun in David's life, he will faithfully carry out. But the following verses reveal this work, that this work began well before David's lifetime. It began centuries prior in the life of a man named Abraham. Because just as God promises David, saying, I will make for you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth, he is subtly calling to mind a similar promise from Genesis chapter 12, when he said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. It's a subtle link, but a significant one. And even if we're tempted to think that that's a coincidence, or maybe just a parallel promise to the one that he made to Abraham, the following verses cast out all doubt. God goes on, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. This is another echo of God's promise to Abraham to give his descendants a home, a land of their own, in which God would protect them and preserve them. It's a promise that Moses remembered after the Israelites had been set free from slavery in Egypt, when he sung the words to God, you will bring your people into the land that you have promised them, and you will plant them on your mountain. And the last elements of God's promise to David, assurances that they will have peace and rest from all of their enemies, again echo the promise that God had made to Abraham's descendants. These few verses from 2 Samuel help us to understand so much of the Old Testament because they clarify for us how God keeps his promises to Abraham and to his descendants. He is keeping them through David. God always keeps his promises, just not in the ways that we may expect him to. And so he draws several direct connections to the work that he began way back in the beginning of the Bible, way back in Genesis, which he has been carrying out through the history of these people and will continue to carry out through David and his lineage. Because among the other reasons that this passage is crucial and a critical part of our understanding of the Old Testament, it is especially important because it is sort of a nexus point between the Old Testament and the New Testament a moment of overlap that helps us grasp how God is at work to tell one story in all of history, though it can be hard to see it all together. This passage connects the very beginning of God's relationship with his people to David, through whom he is keeping all of his initial promises to what lies ahead. David doesn't see that yet. David thinks that God has kept his word, that he has done his work, he thinks that it is finished. 
The main covenant promises that God made way back in the beginning of the Bible have all been kept. He promised to make Abraham's descendants into a vast nation. Check. He promised to give them a land to live in. Check. He promised to bless and provide for them. Check. As David looks around him at the beautiful new capital that he's living in, with enemies on the run and the people of God living in prosperity, he thinks that everything that God has promised to do, he has done. And that's the reason that he suggests building a temple. It's a proper and deliberate response to the God who has established them as a prosperous and independent nation and whose work in that regard is complete. But David is mistaken about something significant. God is not done yet. His vision for the way that God intends to bless his people by keeping his promises is way too small. And that's the third and last point that this passage makes, that God makes in response to David. He is not done keeping his promises. Even though at the very beginning of this scene, it was David who wanted to build God a house, here in verse 11, God says through Nathan, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. God is turning David's suggestion back to him by using sort of a play on words. While David intended to build God a literal house, a building, God will build a different type of house for David. It won't be a physical structure because David already had a really nice house. We know that. It will be a dynasty, a royal lineage. And so he says in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. There are various elements to this sentence, each of which would have been significant to David as he hears them. First, not for nothing, David is going to die someday. Just as the king before him died, his reign will come to an end someday. Second, God is going to do something significant in the offspring of David. This is another subtle lexical connection with God's promises to Abraham, because just as he promised Abraham a family, now he is using the very same word to promise David a family through whom he will carry out all of his purposes. Third, the kingdom of David's offspring will be established by God, and it will be a work of his hands. Again and again and again in this passage, he says, I will, I will, I will. God is the one who will do this thing. This is a prophetic declaration, and like most in the Bible, it is complex and subtle. Because on the one hand, it seems obviously to be referring to David's son, Solomon, who will be the next king of Israel. And it is about Solomon. The very next verse, verse 13, proclaims that this son of David's will build a house for God's name. And that's true. While David, or while Solomon rather, was king, a temple was built in Jerusalem according to God's instruction. It wasn't the house of God's dwelling, as Israel's neighbors thought of their temples, as shelters for their gods. Instead, it was a house for God's name, a place where God would be known and worshipped, where his covenant relationship with his people would be recognized. And Solomon, David's son, would oversee the construction of that temple. So this prophetic promise 
is about David's son Solomon. But reading the rest of verse 13 interrupts our understanding of how this promise can be about David's son Solomon. Because God says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, or I will preserve his reign forever. And that certainly is not what happened with Solomon, because he died just like David died. His reign did not last forever. It ended the day that he keeled over. So what's going on here? This passage is a prophetic revelation about what God is going to do, and it functions just like other similar passages in Scripture. Because within this promise, there are multiple layers, promises laid on top of one another. One scholar describes those layers as horizons of fulfillment. Just as during the Babylonian captivity, centuries after this scene unfolds, God sent prophets to his people who were living their lives in slavery to tell them that he would bring them into freedom. And there's an immediate horizon to that promise because God did give his people freedom. He did bring them home from that captivity. But there's a second distant horizon of fulfillment to that promise that comes true when God sets his people free from an even more devastating captivity. Their slavery to sin. What God is promising David here has two horizons of fulfillment. One is immediate. David's son will reign in his place after his death, and he will build the temple, and his sons will reign after him. And that is why God can say, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men, because they will go astray. All of the kings that will come after David will fail, just as David himself will go astray within a few pages of this moment, and God's justice will be poured out on all of them. But there is another distant horizon that's out of David's line of sight. There will come a king one day, a son of David, whose reign will never end. And he will build a house for God's name by destroying the one that stood there before and rebuilding it three days later. The throne of his kingdom will be established forever. It will never fail, and it will never fall. He will be as a son to God, who will be to him as a father. And even though this once and future king will never sin, will never turn away from God, will never commit any iniquity, he will take upon himself all of the iniquity of all of those who dwell in his kingdom and submit to his reign. And in the place of his people, he will feel God's discipline. And by his stripes, the people of his kingdom will be healed. And in him, the, step, the steadfast covenant love of God will be preserved. And even if our curiosity was piqued by the language of this promise, it isn't until verse 15 that our suspicions are confirmed. This king, whose reign will never end, will be the person in whom God's justice and his mercy will collide. And the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, receives a crown of thorns. This King of, King, King of Kings, whose coronation was carried out by being lifted up on a cross, will satisfy God's wrath against the sin of his people, while at the same time preserving the affection of God for his people. This King is the hope of God's people, not David, because God is not done keeping his promises. 
The moral of the story here is that David is not the hero. There never comes a moment in David's life when God finishes his work and David takes up where God left off. God himself will finish it. And even though David thought that he was at the pinnacle, living the life that God had promised, living on the mountaintop, he could not have guessed how high the peak would be on the distant horizon that he could not yet see that God would deliver his people to. And it is in the reign of this promised king that all of David's hope rests. In sight of the eternal reign of Christ, David's house and his kingdom will be made sure forever, according to verse 16. That is true of all of God's promises. They are sure and steadfast because of the eternal reign of Christ. And even though David would go on to commit terrible acts, becoming a man motivated by selfishness and fear and lust, God's covenant love will not be removed from him as it was from Saul. Because when confronted with his sin, Saul attempted to justify himself. He did not and could not face his own brokenness. David will not make that mistake. He will cry out to God in despair, acknowledging that he is a man of sin at his very core. He will beg for mercy, knowing that it is only this king of kings who can grant it, and he will receive it. Christ, the king of kings, will uphold his covenant love and keep his promises. He will do what David never could have, and that is the king we need. Even though at the very beginning of this chapter, it would have been difficult to imagine a king better for Israel than David, because everything that he had set his mind to was blessed by God. What could possibly be better than, for the people than that? This passage answers that question. The reign of the author of the blessings himself is better. And in the love and mercy that he showed David, we see that it is ours also by faith. Just as it was for God's people when they were in captivity, at the very bottom, in the very darkest hour of their history as a people, God calls out to them and says, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast and sure love for David. The love of God for David, that covenant-keeping love of the eternally reigning God who sits on the throne, established in David's life, and fulfilled by the one whose reign is both just and forgiving, that love is yours and mine if we take hold of it in humble faith that knows there is no other salvation, no other life, and no other hope. He is the king we need. Even though we often settle for less, we put our hope and our trust in lesser things. We content ourselves with lesser, smaller saviors, looking to them to do what they could never do. This short study of the biblical book of Samuel has helped us to see that we should not put our trust, our deepest trust, in these things that are lesser. And we've seen each week that there is hope for us, for Westgate, in the midst of pastoral transition, because our future does not rest on the faithfulness or skill or personality of the next lead pastor. It rests on Christ, whose kingdom never fails. 
Our next pastor may be tremendously skilled and charismatic and intelligent, but the greatest gift that he can give to us is the daily reminder that in Christ we have a king who keeps his promises, who is the king that we need. And so we rejoice as a people redeemed, forgiven, and following a king who makes promises. And looking to the cross, we see every single one of them kept. Let's pray. God, we are thankful to be a people called by your name and according to your purpose. You are the king we need because your reign is eternal. Because your kingdom never fails and it never falls because you are a king who keeps his word. You keep your promises to us. God, we are grateful for that. And we worship you this morning in spirit and truth because we know that we have been redeemed. That when we cry out to you for salvation, for forgiveness, for healing from all of this brokenness, we know that in you we receive it. So we place our deepest trust in you and we worship you and you alone. We do so in the name of our King, Jesus Christ.